Conversations. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on Med Conversations. It's Beck here, I'm here with Scott and today we're going to go through febrile neutropenia. But first, we thought we'd start the inaugural new segment. Scott, can you please share with us your note-taking noticing of the week? <laughs> thanks Beck. I'm sure this segment won't peter out. Um, uh, note-taking highlights of the week. Oh, actually, one of my fellow regs wrote in the notes, instead of um, distressed and delirious, that a patient was distressed and delicious. <laughs> okay. Excellent. That is sensational. Um, all right, second inaugural segment of the week. Uh, useful resources, Scott. Useful resources. Well, if anyone has Instagram, I've just found one uh, of the... No, no one has Instagram. No one has Instagram. Okay. Um, just, you can just, like, Google it, I think, even if you don't have Instagram and see stuff, but... Um, there's a page called Just Med Reg Things, which is really funny. It's Australian and, um, yeah, example jokes. They've got, like, those little costume packs that you buy for Halloween. And, like, on the front of the pack, it's got a picture of just, like, a really normal shirt and chino combination that you see in the hospital. And it says, JMO costume includes chestnut RMs, check shirt, and chinos, paid overtime not included. So if you want some less shit jokes than us, highly recommend just med reg things. Now, febrile neutropenia. All right, let's get back onto familiar territory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, Scott, so you've got some quality content lined up for us today. What are you going to be telling us about? So we're going to be talking about febrile neutropenia. And I think the target here is everyone from med students and interns who are about to start a haematology or oncology rotation or even in ED, and they're a bit nervous about that, all the way up until some stuff for specialty registrars, particularly if you're not like maybe an oncology or infectious disease registrar. Um, I think, Becky, you were saying you enjoyed going through the content a little bit before? Yeah, yeah. Look, I've, I've found this really helpful, so I think that most of you will as well. Um, so we're going to be covering some of the basic definitions. Uh, as usual, we'll go through a case. We'll talk about some epidemiology, history-taking, talk a bit about what kind of infections affect the immunocompromised host and how that should guide your history and exam, investigations, a bit on the micro, how to risk stratify, and then what to do. How do you manage, what do you do with the antibiotics and when do you stop them? Cool. So do you want to kick off with the case, Beck? All right. So I'd like to introduce you all to Matteo. He's a passionate restaurateur whose restaurants had your favourite tiramisu in Melbourne, or at least one good enough to convince you a Sangiovese-soaked memory centre when you last visited. Matteo is currently in hospital after his first autologous stem cell transplant 10 days ago and has had his first fever. You are the cover resident who was walking past his room as your pager went off and he beckons you over before you have time to go and read his chart and procrastinate. You enter his room and see walls festooned with colourful get well soon cards from his grandchildren and friends. What is this febrile neutropenia? He asks you with concern in his eyes. Is it serious? What a is, little, yeah. Do you know what segue? <laughs> <laughs> what is febrile neutropenia? Uh, look, so I know that it's not a disease as, su- as such, it's a, it's a syndrome where patients are febrile and have neutropenia. It's something that I've come across mostly in patients who are receiving chemotherapy. Yeah, so chemotherapies and haematology patients or even some, sometimes some transplant patients are the most common times uh, you'll see uh, febrile neutropenia. Um, and to start with, so neutropenia means low neutrophils. Neutrophils are uh, your most common type of white blood cell in the blood. Um, they're, they're motile, they move, and they're the first to congregate at the site of infection. So they get there, they release cytokines, uh, which recruit and activate other immune cells, as well as directly attacking pathogens through phagocytosis, so eating them, 
um, degranulation, uh, releasing all these different antimicrobials, and also generation of nets or neutrophil, sorry, neutrophil extracellular traps. Great. So neutropenia means low neutrophil. Neutro- we're neutrophils. going really well here. <laughs> <laughs> People aren't taking their neutrophils enough. Yep. So neutropenia, low neutrophils. See also leukopenia, low leukocytes. Yeah, white leukocytes meaning white blood cells. Leukose coming from the Greek for white or lefkos. Um, so the ID um, Infections Disease Society of America um, defines neutropenia as um, below zero point five times ten to the power of nine per liter. But you'll see zero point five pop up on your screen. Um, or um, although the the definition is a bit contentious, and some kind of sources consider neutropenia below 1.5 um with which below is quite different yeah which is quite different i think um most hospitals in australia it'll start kind of flashing red around kind of 1.5 or 2 mm, mm, yeah. okay but fever is not contentious right we, we all agree on what a fever is no this is also very contentious uh what exactly a fever is so um <laughs> obviously sometimes it's really obvious the patient's you know 39 degrees it's persistence and we know they've got a fever. But there's actually a lot of patients who we're not sure if they have a fever or not. So the RDSA definition of a single fever is, uh, sorry, of a fever is a single fever over 38.3 or um, 38.0 for over one hour. And remember that um, uh, that will also depend on what site you take the fever at as well. Mm, checking the temperature on the dependent ear, the dependent tympanic membrane of a patient who's lying on their side can be falsely high the auxiliary temperature is different to the oral temperature. So yeah. I guess the normal ranges vary. I might just add a little side note here. I had a group of medical students the other day who were practicing history taking and often asked patients if they'd had a fever. I think it's important to note here that a lot of patients don't know what that word means. So if you're asking a question like that, the way I phrase it is I say, have you had a fever, a high temperature? Have you been feeling hot and cold? I ask the same question three ways, putting all those words together. So if the patient understands what any of those things mean, I'm going to get an answer that is helpful to know. Of course, that's just subjective and we're talking about the temperature reading here. I agree. I love the double or triple question just to make it really clear for patients who might not have great um, language or health literacy. Really mm. useful. Um, and grey zones exist, but, um, you know, uh, I do a lot, of, um, a lot of residents ring me and say they've got a patient with a fever of, you know, 37.6. You know, it's under 38 is not a fever, generally considered. Um, and over 38.3 is kind of clearly a fever, but obviously there's a grey zone around there. Mm. So we're guided by the other patient symptoms as well. Um, and remember, um, just kind of as a bit of an aside, remember that some immunosuppressed patients are not neutropenic and have normal neutrophils, but still might have other reasons for their immunosuppression. For example, patients on chemotherapy sometimes have neutropenia, not always. Um, so different biologics, um, solid organ transplants, patients with primary immunodeficiencies of different types, and... Um, even room patients on high-dose prednisolone or DMARDs, remember that prednisolone usually increases your neutrophils. Mm. Um, but this episode will be kind of maybe a good starting point um, for fevers in an immunocompromised patient if you don't know which specific elements of their immune system are suppressed and to what extent while you wait and get some specialised help because these patients have a really low threshold to refer them. The um, you know, oncologists or transplant doctors are always happy for questions about their kind of special baby patients that they look after. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Don't go it alone. Okay. So, so how common is all of this? So you'll definitely see it a lot on the wards if you work in most hospitals. But um, the rates of febrile neutropenia in particular groups of patients vary a lot. So in patients with solid tumours, um, there's some data about kind of five to ten percent. 
um, in non-leukemic hematological cancers at 20 to 25%. And in acute leukemia or hematological stem cell transplants, the rates can be over 80%. So different kind of immunocompromised patients have really different rates of febrile neutropenia. Mm. Okay. And, and it's, it's really bad. I was actually having a look at this and I could see that the mortality rate in the 1960s was about 90%, which is fairly astounding. But what is it now? So, yeah, some of the early studies show these terrible mortality rates and more recent data, it's usually um, kind of 10% or under. So, mm-hmm. And that probably reflects a lot of teaching like this where doctors have protocols and ways to think about febrile neutropenia so that we get them the patient's appropriate antibiotics really early. Yeah, okay. 10% is not something to be laughed at, though, so this is really very serious. Yep. Yep, don't put this as the 15th job on your list. No, no. <laughs> um, All right, so so in terms of sepsis in immunocompromised patients, what kind of things are we seeing? Yeah, so in patients without a normal immune system, sometimes some of the signs and symptoms of sepsis might be muted, so it might be less obvious. They might not have – some patients might not even have a fever um, but have mm. an infection um, uh, and – but you can probably use different principles to think about them if you're concerned about infection. Um, and uh, might have less of, you know, an obvious cough or less of an obvious, you know, big red leg or something. Sometimes mm. signs can be more subtle if their immune system's not working properly. Yeah, and if we think back to what you said earlier, neutrophils are the ones responsible for bringing those cytokines and causing that initial local inflammation as well. So if you don't have neutrophils to do that, then you're not going to get those signs of inflammation. Neutrophils also make pus, right? Yeah, I think they're the, the biggest component. So if you don't have any white blood cells, particularly some of these profoundly neutropenic patients, so like patients who've just had a stem cell transplant and lost their bone marrow with, with zero neutrophils, often that you, you won't be able to see little collections of pus. And sometimes when their counts start recovering, then you can see little collections form. Um, and also because these patients are lacking one of the really key parts of their immune system, they have increased mortality and can deteriorate really rapidly from sepsis as well as increased incidence of um, some of the atypical or less common infections and also multi-drug resistant organisms. Um, something which is often forgotten is if you, don't, if you don't have any white blood cells, this will affect some of the tests that we do. Mm, this is a really good point. So normally when I am ruling out an infection, I always do a urine MCS, for example, and I look at it and I say, there's no white cells in the urine, no leukes. Okay, it's not a, urine, um, not a urinary tract infection. But... Now you pointed this out to me, that's a really ridiculous way to think about it because, of course, if they don't have white blood cells, they're not going to have white blood cells in the urine either or in the sputum or in the lumbar puncture or wherever it is that you're sticking a needle and getting a sample from. Exactly. So, you know, remember these are high-risk patients and have a low threshold to treat them empirically and broadly and do lots of tests. So where does neutropenia fit in when we're thinking about all the different kinds of immunocompromise? So this is a complicated area and I, I always found it really confusing because there's a lot of overlap between the different parts of your immune system that are affected and the kinds of infections that you get, partly because different bits of the immune system all interact with other bits. There's all these complicated flow diagrams that you'll learn when you, or, or start, try and learn when you go through BPT training. Um, but neutropenia, to really kind of simplify it, the, the main things that we start thinking about are bacterial infections um, and fungal infections, particularly candida in the short term and um, aspergillus in the longer term for, from a um, persistent neutropenia. Um, often these patients who have neutropenia are often also getting chemotherapy, and, and so that's associated with mucositis, so breakdown of their mucous membranes in their gastrointestinal tract and in their mouth. So we get also the loss of their natural immunity barrier mm, of the skin. Mm. A bit of a double whammy. So does that make them more susceptible to bacterial and 
candidal infections just from getting in there. Exactly, and that's and that's part of that susceptibility. Um, so hopefully at some future point in med conversations, we'll try and do a general infections in immunocompromised patient podcast. But for now, here's some really quick kind of MCQ word association comments. So lymphopenia. Hey, can I say the word? I don't know. How the, I don't know the association. <laughs> so Scott, lymphopenia. That's your adaptive immunity. So, so your T cells and your B cells are the two main kinds of um, lymphocytes. So T cell immunity. If you've learnt about AIDS, the infections you get in AIDS. Think about they're like the T-cell infections is the easy way to remember it. Or the T-cell deficient infections. Yeah, exactly. So things like um, PJP or uh, pneumocystis um, pneumoniae, um, CMV, cytomegalovirus infection, herpes simplex virus or um, candida, some of the um, really common ones that these patients get. Mm -hmm. And B-cells? B-cells. So remember that B-cells produce your antibodies. Um, So there's um, some of the chronic viruses, like things like hepatitis B or recurrent viruses that people get like shingles are important and also mycobacteria like tuberculosis um, as well as some other bacteria that um, where the antibody response is important um, like pneumococcus so um, but for stem cell transplants or chemotherapy often you'll have you know no white blood cells the neutropenia will be together with a leukopenia Um, so uh, you can get all of these different kinds of infections and the other thing that we um, really think about is how long has this patient been neutropenic for or had a low white blood cell count for, or, or been immunocompromised for, because that'll favour different kinds of infections. So mm-hmm. some of the ones like bacteria, cancer infections are more common in the first few weeks, um, and whereas ones like invasive aspergillosis, um, or uh, PJP, hepatitis B, or TB become more common, you know, kind of weeks to months out from the immunosuppression. Okay, okay. And another arena of immunocompromised, what about hyposplenia? So hyposplenia, poor spleen function, you think in um, any MCQ, think encapsulated um, bacteria like um, strep pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis or Haemophilus influenzae. Mm, And outside of MCQ land, in real life land, these are the ones that we immunise against or give antibiotic prophylaxis for. Yeah, check if they're on the Australian Spleen Registry um, because these patients uh, should be followed up by them and that's proven to... Improve outcomes. Improve outcomes and mortality and things. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, patients on biologics, obviously that depends on the target, all these different munimabs and zuzumabs and things um, and have really different uh, effects. Um, but, you know, you can look at the target and kind of work out what kind of immunocompromise might come from there, but remembering that we don't fully understand the immune system. So we always mm-hmm. have kind of a degree of caution and say a lot of these patients could be immunocompromised in ways that we don't understand. But, you know, you've got um, uh, uh, monoclonals like rituximab, which depletes your B cells. So you're thinking that B cell immunity. And just remember that the effects can last for years from their last dose of a biologic medication. So rituximab, for example, can last for up to two years. There's like a notable right, immunocompromise. Okay. Residual effect. Yeah. Um, and just, just another quick note, steroids, they seem safe. We can remember their name. We remember their dose. But actually, they're a really powerful immunosuppressant in high mm. doses. Think of them as like a shotgun affecting all these different parts of the immune system. I feel like kind of more like a cannon. Yeah, like a cannon. A, a small nuclear, uh, targeted nuclear. Um, <laughs> tactical bomb. nuclear tactical, weapon. Tactical, that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very bad. Um, uh, but, but, but the dose is very important. So, you know, the, in, I mean, you'd know more about this than me, Beck, but like endogenous steroid production can be up to about five milligrams of PRED or something or like three or four, right? Yeah, in, in, a, in a healthy person. 
but certainly even if it's endogenous because the person has Cushing syndrome, they're creating a lot more than their immunosuppressed just the same as the person in the bed next to them who might be on 50 milligrams of prednisolone for six months of a 12-month year. Mm. Yeah, so you think about um, – there's, there's some guidelines, but um, I, I like to think about the number kind of 15 or 20 milligrams of prednisolone. If a patient's on more than that per day for a long time, that's like getting up into the more immunocompromised kind of region. Mm, where or, you might be wanting to start some prophylaxis. Yeah, for things like PJP. Um, and obviously um, chemotherapy, um, there's, again, a whole different groups of different kinds of chemotherapy, um, uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy affecting different kinds of rapidly dividing cells. Um, all the way from myeloablative chemotherapy that in, in an auto, or, uh, autologous stem cell transplant. That so that's the real nuclear option. <laughs> <laughs> nuclear option that totally destroys all a person's bone marrow, um, all the way to low-dose palliative chemotherapy that's not intended to be curative. More like a shiv. Yeah, <laughs> prison, prison shiv, is that what we're going yeah. with? Or, okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, obviously a big complex area um, and they're just some kind of word associations and stuff to build on for later. Um. All right. Thanks, Scott. So that that was that was our sort of overview of everything. But now we're just going to zoom back in on neutropenia. So, Scott, can you take us through just a, a way of thinking about this in terms of the different types of febrile neutropenia? Yeah. So I think about what's actually happening when someone has a primary episode of febrile neutropenia. And um, if we look at studies, obviously this depends on you know the the patient group that we're looking at. But um, in in general, um, about um, 10 to 20% of patients with febrile neutropenia, they find a pathogen or they culture a pathogen from somewhere and say they've got a microbiologically documented infection. Mm, that's pretty underwhelming, 10 to 20%. Yeah, and in 20 or 30%, they find a clinically documented infection. So you can see that their leg's red and they've got um, cellulitis or maybe mm-hmm. on their chest X-ray you can see some findings, but you don't grow a bug. So that's about half. And then in the other half, um, 50 or 60%, um, patients have unexplained fever. Mm. So just remember that, you know, often it will be unsatisfying. Yeah, okay. In these patients and you, and you won't find an answer, but it's really important to rule out some of the more um, dangerous kinds of infections that these patients get. Another really important um, term, which you might not have heard about before if you haven't worked on a haematology ward um, that does a lot of transplants, is uh, engraftment syndrome. So in stem cell transplants, uh, I'll just quickly run through it for people who don't know what it is. So basically, um, you're in a stem cell transplant, you're harvesting someone's stem cells, either from the patient themselves for an autologous stem cell transplant, think auto, like that person, or from a donor for an allergenic stem cell transplant, so from someone else. Then you give chemo that totally wipes out the person's bone marrow, that's called myeloablative, to kill the cancer and the immune problem. And then you inf- after that, you infuse the stem cells back, usually the day after, um, depending on the regimen. Um, and you wait for them to engraft. Engraftment means the donor bone marrow moving like a hermit crab into the person's bones or their places where their bone marrow um, are and then starting to produce all their white blood cells, red blood cells and platelets like bone marrow normally does. And while waiting for this engraftment process to happen, the patient will have no white blood cells. So they'll be profoundly neutropenic and they'll often need blood factor support with things like platelets and red blood cell infusions as well. And sometimes they even give something called granulocyte colony stimulating factor to stimulate white blood cell production. Or specifically neutrophil production. Exactly, yep. Um, And usually um, between kind of one and two weeks post-stem cell transplant, um, the patient will um, start engraftment. 
And at this time, they'll often have a fever, which can be non-infectious. Um, and this can be part of this engraftment syndrome, but they can also have this kind of inflammatory response with things like rash, diarrhoea, pulmonary infiltrates, or hepatitis, um, acute kidney injury or CRP rise. So really very hard symptoms and signs to differentiate from um, uh, sepsis. Mm-hmm. Um, usually this responds spontaneously, but very occasionally it requires things like steroids. So basically this group of people, because we often can't differentiate them from infection, we still treat them empirically for infection. So we keep thinking of them in this class of febrile neutropenia. Right, even if it might just actually be all part of the script. Yeah, exactly. So these big unexplained fever category for some of these um, stem cell transplants specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things, are different types of febrile neutropenia you might see. So it's important whether it's new versus old. Has this patient been um, uh, febrile for three or four days or is this the first time they've um, become febrile? And if, um, if they've had a blood cultures cooking in the lab for three or four days, that might help. And they've been clinically stable, that might reassure you that they're not just about to suddenly deteriorate. Mm. Um, uh, and then there's um, persistent neutropenic fever, defined as more than five days on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, some other terms around neutropenic fever are recrudescent neutropenic fever. It's a real chunky word, isn't it? No, it's great. So that's when it's gone away and come back again. Yeah, so the antibiotics make the fever go away, then it comes back later. But another excellent word, they defervesce. Defervesce, yeah. So the fever goes away and then it comes back, okay. Um, I, when I think about febrile neutropenia, I always think about the underlying condition. Why are they neutropenic? Is it a stem cell transplant? Are they on chemotherapy or um, something else? Mm, and just okay. a quick overnight resident tip for when you're, or registrar tip for when you're seeing, or ED reg tip when you're seeing um, febrile neutropenic patients. Um, generally, uh, you can kind of ask the reg if, the, if it's a busy hospital with a lot of febrile neutropenics, but usually any new febrile neutropenia, you should um, probably call the home team registrar, or if they're significantly um, deteriorating clinically or you're worried about them. Mm. But usually if they're recurrent fevers and they're pretty stable, there's no real change, you don't need to wake up the reg, but you can always check what your reg would like. Sorry, that was my phone. Um, no, and I, I think... Let's really emphasise this. This is really important. It's really pragmatic advice. So if you're not a haematology registrar and you're covering that ward for whatever reason, whether you're a med reg or you're an ED or, as you said, any of those people, if you have a patient who newly is developing febrile neutropenia, you need to escalate that to the haematology registrar and some of the, or you know the, the home team registrar. Some, some might have different opinions on that, but I think that that should be your default uh, it's definitely not inappropriate to wake somebody in the middle of the night for this if it's new. Yeah, exactly. And and, and another tip is sometimes I see patients discharged from ED or um, seen by GPs who, who don't get referred on. Um, these immunocompromised special patients, the home team is always happy to be contacted about them. So make sure you always notify um, the home team reg- registrar if you do have one of these sick patients. All right, so that was a really good overview Scott, have you got any advice for us in how to approach history taking or even just a file review for patients like this? Yeah, so um, I always do a bit of a file review before I go and see the patient and then kind of consolidate afterwards. But uh, when I'm taking a history, I, I always do this for my history because um, I find it's easier for my um, simple, simple brain. But I think in locations. So I just look at the patient's body and I move around the body and think about um, all the symptoms from that part of the body. So you can start up with the head. You can go, do they have a headache? Do they have a sore throat, sore eyes, sore ears? Do they have a stiff neck? Um, do they have any swelling in their neck? You know, 
Do they have a cough? Um, are they short of breath? Yeah, just really heading north to south. It's such a pity that there's no video here because Scott is sort of softly caressing the frame of a body in the air in front of him. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully no lawyers. Um, and, but the really key <laughs> symptoms would be things like cough, things like rash, things like diarrhoea, um, dysuria, frequency, particularly remembering that we won't be able to look at the white blood cells on the urine MCS. That won't give us any information. Mm. And number one, if you remember one thing from this podcast... Um, Unfortunately, what? we've exhausted that line twice so far. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't, I don't know what line we can use for this, but just remember that long-term lines are super important. Mm. Really common cause so like of peak lines, chemo ports, peak lines, um, hi, um, peripherally inserted central cannulae, peak lines, um, uh, Hickman's, which are, um, other long-term central lines which are tunnelled, and, and, and chemo patients often have if they've got you know a, a, va- a vascath, a dialysis, or just lots of peripheral IVs. Really important source of infection. You should always check if they've had trouble with those lines, either pain or, or swelling around those lines, or sometimes even if the line stopped working, that's a very poor but slight suggestion there might be an infection there. Mm-hmm. Usually not. Um, uh, if you're uh, the other with any history, but particularly with these patients, I, I, if I, I, the timeline of the symptom is probably the most important thing in thinking about the symptoms. Mm. Um, and the three time points I always pick is when did it start, what brought you into hospital, or what brought you to this kind of um, situation, and, and how are they feeling right now? Do they mm-hmm. still have those symptoms? Um, and the important thing to remember if you're reviewing these patients on the ward is neutropenia can cause a lot of symptoms like um, with severe mucositis. It can cause anal pain, diarrhoea, uh, pain when swallowing, or odonophagia. Um, and some chemo agents can cause other specific focal infective symptoms. So sometimes it is hard to differentiate what's a symptom from our therapies that we're giving them or what's a symptom from an infection that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, Recent transfusions can also trigger um, fevers. That's important to check um, on their chart. And also if they've been started on any new drugs recently, particularly things like antibiotics that might Mm. trigger a fever. Yeah, very common. All right, so so that would be your, your general history of presenting complaint and initial chart review. What would you focus on in the past medical history? So just to give some pointers, if you still look at a heme chart and it looks like it's written in another language to you, um, for the different big classes of these neutropenic patients, here are some of the the really key things that um, you want to know. Or if you're referring to a reg or an ID doctor, these are the kind of things that they might ask you. So for stem cell transplants, when were they transplanted? Why? Um, What's their underlying condition? Um, have they had any um, graft-versus-host disease? If it's an allergenic stem cell transplant where the, the new immune system starts to attack the host's body. Um, and what immunosuppression are they on? So particularly what dose of prednisolone. Um, and what are their neutrophil level, obviously? Um, for cancer, you just want to know what stage they're at, what kind of cancer, um, how long ago were they diagnosed, do they have metastases, what chemotherapy have they had and what are they on at the moment? Have they had radiotherapy, biologics? And again, what, um, are they on any prednisolone or what dose? And, and all of this should be in the notes usually. Um, for solid organ transplants, the kind of questions to think about is when were they transplanted and what for? Um, have they had any rejection? Will they have required extra immunosuppression for their transplant? And how much are they on at the moment? Again, of all their doses, prednisolone dose being the most important. And, um, and, and that's in general for immunosuppression, not so, not so relevant for febrile neutropenia. Yeah, th- these patients uh, don't commonly have neutropenia although they do have fevers um, and, and rheumatologic patients also less commonly have neutropenia but um, 
uh, my little B, kind of BPT um, most important questions I'd think about when I asked a patient about them were um, how were they diagnosed? What are their main manifestations? What immunosuppression are they on? They're the most important things. Yeah, that sounds like a really good summary. So, so overall, it sounds like you're saying we need to find out how severe is this patient's immunocompromised and how long have they been immunocompromised for? Um, is there anything else in their past history that we should be that should be jumping out at us when we're faced with a, a febrile immunosuppressed patient? Yeah, so these are my really key um, ID things that I'm always looking for in their past history. So things like, do they have any metalware? Because remember, if you put plastic or metal in the body, it's not as good at fighting off infection as um, the body itself. So do they have any um, metalware in their spine, artificial joints, artificial valves, a pacemaker? Again, do they have any lines in? That's super important. Um, and also in their past history, I want to go through their chart and ask the patient if they have any history of resistant um, infections. Things like MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, or like multi-resistant gram-negative bugs like CPE and ESBL. And I can see Beck yawning away <laughs> <from> now because she's <laughs> so subtle. interested by the microbiology. <laughs> um, allergies are really important. Yeah. Um, ask the patient, check the notes. And um, social history, uh, my shortcut to that is, uh, which Beck would uh, be aghast at, is who do they live with? Do they use a walking aid? And um, also, have they been overseas or lived overseas to think about if they're at higher risk for more resistant bugs than the ones we commonly find in Australia? I feel like you're skimming here. I'm sure your usual social history involves something about kayaking and caves and consumption of unpasteurised camel milk. Yeah. How has your how's your pet bird been feeling lately? Yeah. yeah. So just to summarise, what have mm. we talked about so far, Beck? Yeah, so I think it's been a really good overview so far. So you've told us that febrile neutropenia has a definition that's a slippery slippery sliding uh, scale of things, but overall we're going to call neutrophils less than 0.5 and temperature greater than 38, um, with both of those being slightly variable. Very high mortality associated with this, but improves with early antibiotics, which we'll go into more later. The signs and symptoms can be a little bit muted. 20% of patients are bacteremic and 50% of them we never find a source at all. And in history, we're looking to gauge the degree of immunosuppression and the key things that I took away from this are timelines and lines. Timelines and lines. How long have they been neutropenic for and do they have any lines? They're the unforgivable things to not know if you're thinking about how to treat these patients. So what about the case? All right, Mateo. so I think all we established about Matteo before was that he owned a, an Italian restaurant. But you go back and you, you find out a bit more about him. It turns out he's 65 years old. And his past medical history is significant for multiple myeloma. This was diagnosed five years ago, initially as smouldering myeloma, and has progressed to symptomatic multiple myeloma four months ago. He's now had induction therapy, induction chemotherapy, that is. He's achieved remission and then was admitted for an autologous stem cell transplant 11 days ago. He also has hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. He's been on pregabalin for back pain for many years. And he has stage 3 CKD, chronic kidney disease, with an EGFR of 40. He lives with his wife and he's still working full-time in his restaurant. He tells you he wants to keep working and curating people's delicious experiences until his back gives out. He's an ex-smoker, enjoys a Negroni after work on the weekends and does not have any allergies. So moving to his symptoms at the moment, he's feeling pretty stable but he spiked his first fever today. It was 38.5, so unequivocally in fever territory. He hasn't had any rigors. You go through a systems review. 
He's feeling tired, um, moderately fatigued, sick of being in hospital. And he describes some loose stools, type 6 on the Bristol stool chart. Hopefully you're all familiar with that, but if you're not, you should definitely print a copy and put it on the back of the toilet door. He's had three or four a day for the last four days and describes some mild anal pain. His throat feels dry. He hasn't had any cough and he does have, oh sorry, he hasn't had any cough and he also hasn't had any coryza, but he does have some mild mucositis. There's no dysuria, but he does have frequency and nocturia. You note that he's on IV fluids due to his difficulty with oral intake. You have a look at his medication chart and see that he's been on fluconazole prophylaxis for candida and valacyclovir for the duration of his admission. Great. So to summarise, he feels probably like most patients who just had a stem cell transplant feel like with some, some uh, symptoms of mucositis um, and, a, and some mild diarrhoea. So Scott, what's your approach to examination in this context? So the most important thing is the vitals. So is this patient hemodynamically unstable? Are they tachycardic? Do they have a low blood pressure? Um, are they tachypneic with a high respiratory rate? Um, and you know, if they're in ICU, are they on vasopressors like noradrenaline? Mm. Um, the second most important thing on examination is lines, lines, lines. What lines do they have? When were they inserted? Are they sore? And you can kind of go around as you kind of poke them and double check with the patient. And again, like, like the history taking, a, a top-to-toe exam is really good. And you're starting, you know, starting off, I start off with things like GCS to check that the patient's oriented. You're looking all over for things like rashes, cuts, cellulitis. Um, you're looking for features of meningism like neck stiffness or photophobia. Um, and I always, I always shine a light in their eyes to check if they're clinically photophobic. Mm. Um, the mouth is a really good place to look. Often in these patients, you'll see a bit of mucositis and you might see some thrush. And that might affect whether you decide to give the patient empiric uh, antifungals. Um, you should always have a listen to their lungs, have a listen to their heart, looking for features of infection or fluid overload. And a, a little signpost here, um, you generally do not perform uh, um, digital rectal examination in febrile neutropenics. Mm, really important. Yeah. Because they're neutropenic, you can disrupt it, the barrier and um, um, cause problems. So do not um, do not do a DRE. You don't need to feel guilt if you skip that part of the exam. <laughs> so right. what, what do you find on Matteo? So back to Matteo, his vital signs are the first thing that you look at on his chart and he has a respiratory rate of 22, a little bit elevated, saturating well at 94% on room air. His heart rate is 110, a little bit tachycardic and his blood pressure is normal at 120 on 70. He is indeed febrile as the rumours said up to 38.6 degrees Celsius. He's mentating well, GCS is 15. And with Scott's words echoing in your head, you have a look at lines. He has a Hickman's line in. You noticed it was inserted three weeks ago. It's not erythematous or red. It's, it's not warm, tender, and it seems to be working well. There's no indwelling catheter. He doesn't have a rash. You notice that he does have some bi-basal scattered crepitations in his lungs. His heart... His cardiac examination is normal with dual heart sounds and a non-elevated jugular venous pressure. He doesn't have any peripheral edema. His abdomen is soft and untender and in his mouth, going back north again, you notice that there's mild mucositis with some ulceration and oral candidiasis. So overall, we're seeing some features that might be consistent with biventricular heart failure and mucositis, but there's no focal signs of infection that are particularly compelling here. Yes, a little bit of fluid overload and some mucositis. So these are pretty common findings, um, but 
you should make sure that this, it won't be the content of this podcast, but fluid balance in this patient is also really important. Sometimes they need think a lot of frusamide or close fluid management. Um, so, Beck, in every patient with febrile neutropenia, what blood tests would you do? I'll have a septic screen. Thanks, mate. <laughs> yep. So, so this is blood cultures, at least two blood cultures. But in this population, you really, really want to culture something if there's something to be cultured. So ideally three. Three. One, one from every line and at least one peripherally. That will improve your sensitivity. It brings it up an extra 10%. So yep. try and get them before you give the patient any antibiotics. Yeah. In terms of other blood tests, I'll send off a full blood examination, urea, electrolyte and creatinine panel, liver function tests, C-reactive protein, CRP, and a lactate. So you can either send a lactate in a little grey tube or you can do a VBG. VBG, a venous blood gas, has the advantage of giving you the answer very quickly. So that's often a very useful test to do. And then outside of blood tests, we'll send off a urine MCS and we are not going to be reassured by the absence of leukes because these are patients who are leukopenic, so they don't make many white blood cells and if there's no white blood cells in the urine, it doesn't rule anything out. Um, we'll do a chest X-ray and a nasopharyngeal PCR. So I would be writing on my request that this is an immunocompromised patient and I'd like an extended respiratory panel so other hospitals, like the one I'm working at at the moment, will otherwise just do COVID and influenza A and B unless you specify that you want the whole package. An example of where it's in really important to communicate to the microbiology lab but in the clinical notes, whereas mm. on an FBE, no one cares. Yeah. Yep. I think the haematologists probably care. But an FBE, they're just running it through a machine. Yeah. They don't have like an algorithm, whereas there's different PCRs that they can do for different respiratory viruses depending on the patient's risk factors or like with a blood culture different kind of plates that they can put the um that they can uh you know put the blood onto so um that's why yeah. it's important there yeah if they've got unformed stool you'll send that off um but if they've got formed stool the lab don't do anything with it so don't bother unless they've got diarrhea uh, and you'll be sending it off for microscopy and also overseas and parasites yeah and um uh, ocp it's sometimes called and um sometimes some cult uh, some hospitals will actually do a multiplex PCR on the stool, but usually if you send off a stool MCS, they'll know what to do. Mm. Um, in terms of, so that's a really good kind of basic set, which is pretty similar to what you'd normally do as part of your septic workup. Um, some other investigations that I'd consider, depending on the patient's symptoms, how long they've been neutropenic, some of their other risk factors, would be things like um, urinary uh, antigens for um, uh, pneumococcus and for Legionella. It's a very easy test to do. Um, cryptococcal antigen on the blood, check for cryptococcus. Um, uh, if they do have any ulcers or rash, you can send that off for swab it and send it off for PCR for things like HSV or VZV. As well as just an MCS, a bacterial culture. Yeah, exactly, if it looks like it's infected. Um, if they've got a sore line or some redness or swelling around it, you can do a DVT ultrasound. Um, mm. What are you looking for there? Uh, you're looking for um, thrombophlebitis or an, uh, an infected um, clot in their arm yeah, or leg or wherever it is. Um, if they've been febrile for a while and you can't find a source, you could consider a TTE, transthoracic echocardiogram. Um, and uh, other investigations, depending on if they've got any pain or symptoms anywhere, would be a CT brain, if any headache or confusion. If they've got back pain, you should probably consider a CT whole spine. 
Mm. And interesting, it probably depends there why you think they've got back pain because if you're worried about an epidural abscess or osteomyelitis, would CT be the best modality there? Yeah, so CT won't be as sensitive as an MRI for epidural abscess. It'll, it'll miss a few of them. So um, depending on what resources you have available to you, um, you, you know, MRI spine could also be really important. Um, CT chest abdopelvis, particularly CT chest, can be really important. Um, in a lot of these patients, we really worry about uh, invasive fungal lung infections, things like aspergillus, um, and really it's hard to, often hard to rule out without a CT chest. Um, that's probably kind of your go-to if a patient's febrile for a few days that you shouldn't miss. Mm. Some patients, um, you could consider a lumbar puncture if they've got symptoms of um, meningitis or encephalitis, um, remembering that they might need a platelet cover to up their platelets and reduce the risk of bleed while they're getting their LP. A needle stuck in their back, yep. And they're probably kind of some of the main ones. But obviously, mm. if you're worried about specific infections, there's other things you could do as well. Um, and something that confused me as kind of a junior resident is you'll hear a lot about um, bronchoscopies. Now, um, any patient with respiratory infections in kind of ICU or immunocompromised patients that are, that are persistent and have some funny findings on their um, CT chest, um, if, they, if they can get it, they should probably get a bronchoscopy, particularly to rule out fungal infections, but also to rule out a lot of other rare infections that immunocompromised patients can get. Um, but it's actually hard to do a bronchoscopy if the patient's too unstable, if they're needing high dose of oxygen and things, mm. and, unless they're intubated. So um, if there's anything funny on their chest, I would chat with the respiratory team early to see if they think yeah. that a um, bronchoscopy So if you're an indicated. intern, don't do the bronchoscopy yourself, is what <laughs> you're saying. <laughs> yeah, don't just improvise <laughs> it on the ward. All right, so... Going back again to Matteo, you've ordered the bloods, three lots of blood cultures. You get everything back. He has pancytopenia, which means that basically everything you can see on the first three things on the FBE are low. His hemoglobin is 82. His white cell counts are low, but specifically his neutrophil count is zero and his platelets are 35. His CRP is fairly underwhelming at 45. And his estimated glomerular filtration rate is 40 from a normal baseline. His chest X-ray is unremarkable. The nasopharyngeal PCR is negative. So is the stool faecal multiplex. The urine shows zero leukes with no growth. And the mouth HSV CMV PCR was negative. Yeah, that's on the ulcer. On the yeah. ulcer, yeah. yeah. So what do we do now? So now we should think about empiric antibiotics, but remembering that if this is a new febrile neutropenia, you should probably also notify the home team registrar. Okay. And should we start these antibiotics now or should we just wait until we know exactly what we're treating? Should we wait for those cultures to come through? No, it's really important that you start it soon. There's some studies in sepsis and bacteremia that have showed uh, a really strong correlation with how long patients wait for appropriate antibiotics and mortality. So this isn't something that you should just kind of vaguely, you know, kind of wander off and, you know, leave a message in the notes for the nurses to do something. You should, as soon as possible, make sure that the nurses or yourself are getting some blood cultures and that they're, that they're aware that they need to get their antibiotics in soon to this patient, mm. ideally within 60 minutes. Yep. So try and think about the communication process with the nurses, how you can help them along and how the logistics of him actually receiving those antibiotics will look like. Yeah, so uh, yeah, communication is key here. Make sure he doesn't get wheeled off for a CT rain or something and the, with a plan to start Tazacin later. 
Right. So before we go into the nitty gritty of exactly how to treat, how do you risk stratify these patients, Scott? What's your kind of way of seeing how severe these are and and therefore what kind of treatment they're going to need to get? Yeah, so um, stem cell transplants like our patient are often preemptively admitted for their period of neutropenia. So if, for a patient like this, they're, you know, they're quite high risk and you know, they're going to get IV empiric antibiotics. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. But if you're in ED or the community and you're seeing some lower risk um, febrile neutropenic patients, there's um, you know, patients maybe on a bit of adjunctive chemo with a borderline um, neutrophils or that, that don't look very sick and feel very well. Um, there's some scores you can use to risk stratify to decide whether patients should be admitted for IV antibiotics and monitoring, like our patient, or if they can be discharged home on oral antibiotics with close monitoring by the um, oncology or haematology team. Um, usually the regimen is um, augmentin um, for pretty general gram-positive, gram-negative and anaerobe cover, plus ciprofloxacin for pseudomonas cover, just as an aside. Um, there's a couple of different scores. The first one's called MASC. M-A-S-C-C, which is uh, the Multinational Association of Supportive Care in Cancer Score. So um, that's um, usually used for a lot of these solid organ uh, cancer patients. Maybe this is something that will confuse people. Um, but we've got solid organ cancer to differentiate them from hematological cancers, yeah. you know, things like leukaemias and lymphoma, just if Look, you if, haven't if heard anyone, that If anyone listening in doesn't know that blood is not a solid, then <laughs> I, we, can, we can do a little, a little yep. prequel to this episode later. Yep. I think that's fine. Run a special supplementary yeah. <laughs> conversations podcast so for you. Solid cancers and liquid cancers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so but the this one's for solids. Yeah. So you don't need to remember this, but basically the mass score looks at things like um, symptom severity, hypotension, history of COPD, history of fungal infection, dehydration, outpatient or inpatient status at the fever and their age, and um, uses this score to calculate whether they're low risk or whether they're high risk. Um, and then there's also another score called the CISNI score, Clinical Index of Stable, stable Febrile Neutropenia, not Stable Febrile Neutropenia. Um, and that's um, validated for leukaemia and um, um, solid cancers and uses a, a pretty overlapping set of variables. Uh, uses things like um, the ECOG score, do they have COPD on therapy, do they have heart failure, do they have mucositis, are their monocytes low? And do they have stress hyperglycemia on presentation? So I guess there's also some different ones in there. Um, and it, this um, puts them into low risk with a, uh, a category of zero. Or if they've got a score of one or two, they're intermediate risk. And three is high risk. And it can give kind of mortality risks that help you decide whether it's worth, you know, keeping the patient in, in hospital for a full week while you wait for all these investigations versus holding them overnight and maybe getting them home on some oral antibiotics while you wait for some of the tests to happen. Okay, so there's also a lot of different organisms that can cause infection in patients who do have febrile neutropenia. And we thought that we might go through this. There's a lot, obviously we could just reel off a huge list of some Latin and Greek names, but um, Scott's going to go through the different categories and just the, the key things to remember about some of the most important ones. So if we kick off with gram-positive bacteria... Yeah, so you remember these are the staphylococci, enterococci and streptococci, the three cocci genuses. Um, and, you know, particularly staph aureus being the most important, particularly high risk if the patient's got lines in. And then you've got MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, that you often need vancomycin to treat. Mm -hmm. And you're also remembering that some of those enterococci might be 
vancomycin resistant enterococci that mm, VRE VRE that exactly that aren't even um, sensitive to vancomycin and sometimes need other drugs like dapto um, mycin daptomycin sorry full <laughs> yeah yeah too much slang um, then you've got your um, uh, gram positive rods uh, the, the really important one here is listeria um, that um, sometimes isn't well covered by the standard empiric regimens um, in immunocompromised patients really important cause of meningitis mm, okay um, then you've got your gram-negative bacteria, so your Enterobacteriaceae or your gut bugs, your things like um, um, E. coli, Klebsiella, um, Enterobacter, um, which can sometimes be quite resistant, things like ESBL and um, CPE or carbapenem-resistant Enterobacterales, which if you want to have a listen to, you can listen back to our gram-negative bacteria podcast that we did a few months ago. Mm. Um, then you've got some of your more resistant um, environmental gram-negatives, non-fermenters, things like um, pseudomonas, which we think of almost in a class by itself because it's really important to, to have empiric coverage for that, things like tazacin or ciprofloxacin, and then some of the other rarer ones like acinetobacter or stenotrophomonas uh, multifiliae is another really important cause because, again, this bacteria is not covered by the standard empiric antibiotic regimen that we usually give these patients. So if they're not responding, it's something we need to think about. Mm, okay, so that's gram-positive and gram-negative. That's all, right? We're done. <laughs> if only. Making my job very easy. But um, some of the other groups of um, uh, infect pathogens to think about are anaerobes, so things like Clostridium difficile, C. diff, um, atypical uh, infections, um, things like atypical respiratory infections like mycoplasma or chlamydophila. Again, I think about these separately because we need a, sometimes an intracellular antibiotic like azithromycin or doxycycline to cover them. Um, mycobacteria. Things like TB, tuberculosis, um, mycobacterium tuberculosis, as well as all the other non-tuberculosis mycobacteria that sometimes we can do special cultures for if we want to look for them. Um, Nocardia is another rarer um, bacterial infection. And then I think about fungal infections. Mm. So the three really key fungal infections, if you don't know much about fungal infections, are candida, Remember that um, neutropenic patients are very high risk for this in the short term. Everything from oral candidiasis or thrush all the way through to esophageal candidiasis or candidemia, which actually has a very high mortality if you find candida in the blood. Um, aspergillus, particularly causing invasive aspergillosis, so aspergillus lung infection in some of these immunocompromised patients that can start kind of a few weeks into their neutropenia. Mm -hmm. This is the longer term neutropenia patients. Exactly, yeah. And um, PJP on pneumocystis. Pneumocystis cerevitiae. So um, this uh, is a really important cause of uh, infection in immunocompromised patients. And sometimes we give them prophylaxis with Bactrim uh, for that. Um, other kinds of infections to think about are viral infections, your res respiratory viruses. So particularly that extended respiratory viral PCR is really important. Um, and uh, gastrointestinal viruses, things like norovirus um, can be can be, cause quite severe disease in immunocompromised patients. Obviously COVID, I don't think anyone would miss that anymore <laughs> in a patient <laughs> with a fever. And cytomegalovirus, I'm mentioning that here because you can do a, a it, it's not common in kind of acute febrile neutropenia, but in immunocompromised patients, the test for that is a CMV viral load, usually on their blood, and you can do, uh, a, a, which is a PCR test, and you can also do PCR and other kinds of things as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then parasites? Parasites, so um, probably the, some of the most important ones are strongyloides, that's this chronic parasitic infection and 
most patients who have a transplant or have chemotherapy should have been tested for that when they were first being worked up. But you can just go back and double check that they had their strongyloides test and they had their TB quantifier on gold because it does get missed sometimes. And toxoplasmosis is another one. All right. So, so Scott, I've got this patient in front of me and I want to call you for advice as the ID registrar. What do you want me to know before I call you? So these are, I'll give you some things that are like the most important anytime you're calling ID reg or deciding what antibiotics to give that you should think about, but are particularly important for febrile neutropenia. So first, just common sense, how sick is the patient? What are the vitals? Remembering that the first rule of how broad your antibiotic uh, coverage needs to be is how sick is the patient? And that should help you guide how many kind of uh, resistant bugs we need to cover. Um, second, after how sick the patient is, is their past microhistory. Have they grown MRSA, VRE, Pseudomonas, Stenotrophomonas before, or CPE, ESBLs? Yep, so if it's been there before, mm. it might be there again. Exactly, they might be colonised. Um, what past antibiotics have they had, including are they on any prophylaxis? Particularly in the US, they often give um, fluoroquinolone prophylaxis um, to some patients having stem cell transplants or certain kinds of chemotherapy. And that would, if you know you're already covering a bug, then you don't have to think about it when you're looking at your empiric antibiotics. And you also know that they're at a higher risk of having a more resistant bug that's resistant to the antibiotic you're already giving them. I, I want to think about other risk factors for resistant infections. Like, for example, if you're in a very uh, multi-resistant bug naive place like Australia, if they've <laughs> been overseas and hospitalised in Thailand or India, where they might have a really resistant carbapenem-resistant um, organism. And obviously, do they have any allergies? And what is their renal function to help you decide which drug to give? Okay, so six things. How sick is the patient? What's their past microhistory, past antibiotic history? Do they have risk factors for resistant infections? Do they have allergies? And what is their renal function? Yeah, yeah. Um, so normally for these patients with febrile neutropenia, we need to cover gram-positive bugs, particularly things like Staph aureus. Uh, we need pretty good gram-negative cover, remembering they've got all this horrible mucositis in their gut, so they could easily have an infection that's come from their gut with all these gram-negative bugs. And we also need anti-pseudomonas cover. So um, some of the most common um, antibiotics you'll see used first line are things like um, piperacillin tazobactam or tazacin, meropenem, mm -hmm. uh, which is a carbapenem, or kefepine. Uh, and um, sometimes uh, the patients are also recommended to get a single dose of an aminoglycoside like gentamicin or a loading dose of vancomycin to cover MRSA just in case they have MRSA instead of MSSA that's covered by the tazacin and the meropenem. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to that first principle of empiric antimicrobial coverage, so the broadness of the cover should be proportional to how sick the patient is. Yeah, um, obviously not taken to extreme where every patient who hiccups in ICU gets um, meropenem and daptomycin. But it depends how bad the hiccups are. <laughs> pretty, pretty distressing symptoms, hiccups, actually. I shouldn't talk it down. But um, that's a really useful principle if you're kind of mm -hmm. scratching your head and deciding how broad you need to go. Yeah. And you can always start very, very broad and then rapidly de-escalate within kind of 24 or 48 hours. I never, ever write gentamicin as a regular drug, for example. I'll only ever write it stat. And then I'll give it again the next day because it has lots of side effects. But sometimes a single dose of stat, gentamicin will increase your coverage, give you some good um, antimicrobial cover and kind of allow you some time to wait for those blood cultures to grow. And leave you deaf, deaf for the rest of your life. 
So in, in Australia, on the therapeutic guidelines, what would we be seeing if we plugged in febrile neutropenia? So the guidelines are, the options are tazacin at a higher dose than normal, so um, four times a day, QID, just in case it's pseudomonas, um, or so tazacin or kefepine. Um, and if unwell or there's features of shock, it recommends also giving a vancomycin load to cover that MRSA and some more of that intracoccus and giving a single dose of gentamicin. Yeah, okay. And just kefepime, just going back again, is a fourth generation uh, kefalosporin. Yeah, exactly. It does cover um, does cover pseudomonas. Yeah. And in the US, they don't usually use Piptaz first line. They more often use um, kefepime and meropenem first line just because it's got a little bit more ESBL cover, which is a bit more common over there. But your institution, if it does transplants will probably have a guideline about what they usually like to use for these kind of patients. So you can always check that. Um, the other thing to think about is whether you should give empiric antifungal therapy. So uh, for things like candidemia, you can give fluconazole or caspofungin, uh, which is an echinocandin that works against um, uh, some of these candida um, species. And um, in patients, risk factors for that include things like um, if the patient has lines in, if they're on total parenteral nutrition, if they're colonised with candida in their urine, if they've got oral candidiasis or um, candidiasis you can see anywhere else, mm. and if they're sick. And there's no like definite yes or no situation of do you start with empiric antifungals, but you can base this decision. Uh, it, usually if the patient's quite, quite well and doesn't have a lot of risk factors, you usually don't, but it's something to think about and chat with ID. Yep. All right, sounds good. So in discussion with your registrar, you note that Mateo has no previous resistant organisms, antibiotic exposure, overseas travel or hospital admissions, and that he's clinically well with stable vitals. So you decide to start Cipracillin Tazobactam, 4.5 grams QID, four times a day. But you elect not to start any empiric vancomycin or antifungals, keeping in mind that he's already on fluconazole prophylaxis. The reason that we chose the QID dose again was so that we could cover pseudomonas so it's a higher dose than usual in patients with febrile neutropenia. Yeah, and some other drugs that have kind of special doses that people can... I, I often see people get wrong. Are things like keftriaxone has a much higher dose. Instead of one gram a day, it's two grams twice a day for meningitis. Flucloxacillin has a special endocarditis dose, which is a lot higher. Two grams Q4 hourly instead of um, kind of 500 milligrams um, a dose. And... Um, uh, a lot of the treatments for pseudomonas involve increasing the dose. So you'll actually give a higher dose of Cipro, 750 milligrams BD. Sorry, Ciprofloxacin. <laughs> sorry, 750 milligrams BD instead of 500 milligrams BD. And so just, just to be aware of. Okay, back to the case. Suddenly you're interrupted from your afternoon coffee from the lab staff. Your heart leaps. What will the blood culture show? Nothing. The coag's bottle from this morning clotted and you need to see it, send another one. You thank them for their time and question why you ordered coags in any case. Mm. Five days have now gone past and Matteo continues spiking fevers up to 39 degrees. His vitals have remained fairly stable and beyond expected fatigue from his mucositis and chemotherapy, he actually feels fine. All cultures remain negative and his neutrophils are still zero. His C. difficile PCR and toxin is negative. I don't understand, he tells you. When I have a problem in the restaurant kitchen, I always find out what it is and fix it straight away. I remember once we kept running out of panna cotta, then I realised that whenever my daughter came over after school, she was raiding the fridge, so I grounded her. Why can't all you doctors just find out what infection I have and fix it? 
So what? Yeah, what do you do in this situation, Beck? Well, how, I, how do you fix it? I guess the the first question is, do we need to fix it? As you said earlier, we don't always find a cause, and and about half the time we don't find a cause. Um, but I would want to make sure that we're not missing anything. So what are the holes in the current antimicrobial regime we have? Mm, exactly. When anyone, anytime anyone rings me about antibiotics, this is always my first question. Like what antibiotics are they already on and what are some of the gaps in that of other resistant infections that could be causing their symptoms? So the really common things, I've already run through them, but things like methicillin-resistant staph aureus, um, vancomycin-resistant um, enterococci, VRE, ESBLs, CPE, and some of the other ones we mentioned, like stenotrophomonas, um, atypical organisms, uh, fungal infections, viral infections, mycobacterial infections like TB. They're just all the things that kind of keep kind of uh, percolating at the back of your mind. Mm. If that metaphor even makes almost makes sense, which I don't think it does. No, no, no. I pay that. <laughs> so we've already talked through this a bit, but some of the risk factors for some of these um, kinds of infections are fungal risk factors. We mentioned colonisation with fungi, neutropenia. Um, lines, uh, total parenteral nutrition and um, bowel perforation or bowel mucosa disruption. Um, what, what things are increase your risk for MRSA, Beck? Uh, MRSA is probably the key risk factor for MRSA, so if you've had it before. <laughs> yep. Um, lines, again, lines, lines and timelines. Being in ICU, being on dialysis, having diabetes, being an IV uh, intravenous drug user, being homeless. Yeah, exactly. And risk factors for VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, in include things like previous vancomycin-resistant enterococci, or treatment with vancomycin, and a lot of the same risk factors for MRSA, mm -hmm. time in hospital, ICU, etc. Okay. So option one, why they're still febrile. You, they've got an infection that your antibiotics or antifungals aren't covering. Mm -hmm. Option two, is, there, is the dosing adequate? Have you not got them on the right dose? Have, have you not adjusted it for their renal function? Or is it um, oral and it needs to be IV? Um, is there a problem with source control? So this is really important, particularly for lines. Mm. So if a patient has an infected line, then you might need that taken out or any kind of infected prosthesis, like a infected artificial um, hip joint or artificial knee. Mm. And, and if you're a medical student and haven't heard this turn of phrase before, source control, you're now going to be hearing it everywhere. It's really important. Source control, source control. Yeah, mm. really important. So that's when the infection is, is hiding away somewhere and you've got to cut it out. Yeah, and other places that infections can hide are things like on heart valves, if they've got endocarditis um, in their spine. Um, if you've got an epidural abscess, you might need a CT or M ideally MRI to, to find. Um, or if they've got osteomyelitis somewhere. Mm. Another option, uh, are your antibiotics just working really slowly? You know, sometimes we see this with a really severe um, uh Strep pyogenes infection, where they're on the right antibiotics, but they just have you know days, you know quite a few days of fevers before it starts to come down. Okay. Um, other causes of fever, Beck? Yeah, so this is where the antibiotics aren't working because you're not actually treating an infection. Other causes of fever could include drug fevers, often associated with antibiotics themselves. One we talked about earlier was engraftment syndrome, so fevers just associated with the expected progression of things when somebody's had a bone marrow transplant there can be disease related fevers and when we talk about when we talk about disease we mean the underlying malignancy and then back again lines 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 have all their lines been changed when will they change 
Um, and again, if you think about what other tests you could do for some of these things, things like a CT chest, PCR, different ulcers or their blood or um, stool, um, have they had those urinary antigens or cryptococcus? Have you had done all the directed tests for focal infections of uh, uncontrolled sources, like for back pain? Um, have they had a TTE? And uh, have they did they get all their pre-treatment serologies and things before they started their immunosuppression? And do they, do they need a bronch to rule out an atypical respiratory infection? Sorry, bronchoscopy. I'll, st I'll stop using <laughs> slang. All right. So we've talked about when the antibiotics aren't working and some of the reasons that might be the case. When should you escalate your antibiotic therapy? So this is sometimes a complex decision that should be made together with uh, the specialist team and infectious disease. But um, the important thing is that often the mean duration of febrile neutropenia for haematologic stem cell recipients is five days. Um, it's two days in solid cancer patients, but sometimes you will frequently see these patients who just have ongoing fevers, mm. often without finding a cause. And persistent fever alone in a clinically stable patient, does not indicate escalation of therapy. So just because they've had fevers for five days doesn't mean you have to keep escalating the antibiotics they're on to give broader coverage. However, there are some exceptions. Um, if the patient has mucositis or lots of risk factors for fungal infection, you could consider adding antifungals after four to seven days. And remember, if the patient clinically deteriorates, if they look like they're getting worse, you should always think about expanding. Um, and, but remember, this is a specialty area. If the patient deteriorates, discuss with your team and you can come up with a decision whether you need to add on you know, vancomycins, which um, PIPTAS to meropenem to cover all those uh, resistant ESBLs, whether you need to give them VRE cover and all these things. And Hair of newt. Hair of newt. <laughs> that would be useful for neutropenia. Add mm. some more newt. We need to do some RCTs on hair of newt. Mm. There's a lot of potential. All right, so you come back to the case. It's now day six for Matteo. Further testing has shown minor atelectasis at the lung bases on a CT chest, but no loba consolidation. And the key thing we were looking for, invasive aspergillosis, is not present. Repeat stool was also negative, and the cultures that you've drawn both peripherally and from his Hickman's line are all still negative. So Scott, could he have had a bacteremia that we just haven't picked up? So because we were really um, good and we got three good, well-taken blood cultures prior to any antibiotics, it's pretty unlikely he's had a bacteremia. Um, some bugs don't grow as well in the blood, so there's still a very small chance for some of the more unusual pathogens. But it, for things like Staph aureus, Golden Staph, it's extremely unlikely that um, he has had a bacteremia, given he's had all those blood cultures and five days of the lab to try and cook up all the blood and they haven't grown anything. Okay. And for Matteo, he's still pretty clinically well and he's on fluconazole prophylaxis. So the team, uh, the collective team, decide to hold course and not add any further antimicrobials. So when can we stop antibiotics in febrile neutropenia? This is a bit more of a controversial and specialised area. So if it you're means he doesn't know. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> that's what you should hear when you hear those words. Um, and you'll see some different practice by different haematology doctors and infectious disease doctors. Um, but uh, basically, uh, if the, you still can't find a source of this fever of unknown origin, this P or PUO, after, after many days, that's a bit harder to stop than if you find a source, if you know that they've got a cellulitis or a pneumonia that's clinically responding to therapy. However, some stop 
after the patient's been afebrile for kind of two to four days. And some other um, doctors will be much more conservative and wait until the patient's neutrophils recover before they'll stop the antibiotics. Or they might, um, if, if the patient's going to be neutropenic for a long time, they might switch from IV antibiotics to just fluoroquinolone um, prophylaxis until the neutrophils recover. Mm, okay. Because that might be the point where the infection manifests and that's the point where you know their immune system's working more normally again. Um, but uh, generally, uh, th- there's been a lot of kind of recent work in this area. If you want to, for kind of brownie points, or you're interested in ID or um, hematology, there's a, a how long study which found no difference between continuing until neutrophil recovery and stopping at three days after the fevers had stopped. Mm-hmm. There's also a study called the anti-bio-stop study, uh, which found no difference when just stopping at five days, regardless of therapy, um, as long as you fit certain criteria. Um, but this is a, this is a specialised area, so um, only for the keen beans in the room. Yeah, and I, and I guess the general principle for any kind of infection is, is to have a plan and not just keep antibiotics going on forevermore, which is something that uh, I see a lot of, but not so much on a haematology ward where they're used to this kind of thing. Oh, <laughs> I see pretty... <laughs> sometimes they're pretty conservative on haematology wards as, as, as well. As long as it's been thought about, as long as it's considered. Yeah, as long as there's been a discussion, I think. But um, And remember that you know antibiotics aren't totally benign medications. You know They carry significant risks. They increase the risk of multidrug-resistant organisms. Um, they can cause clostridium difficile diarrhea, which can be really um, uh, se- severe for the patient. Mm-hmm. And they can cause drug reactions. So if, if a patient's febrile for too long and we're ID consulting on them, eventually we'll often just stop all their drugs just to check that it wasn't a drug reaction if we're not convinced that they have infection because those antibiotics could be causing the problem that you're trying to treat. Or other drug side effects like acute kidney injury or hepatitis. Mm, which is very common. I mean, this isn't rare stuff. Yeah. Okay, so Mateo continues to have fevers on piperacillin tazobactam and fluconazole, but he remains stable with no new focal infective symptoms. Repeat daily blood cultures and stool cultures remain negative. The echocardiogram is unremarkable with mild diastolic heart failure and no vegetations. Or veggies, as they are cutely known. <laughs> Finally, on day 16, his neutrophil counts recover to above 0.5, and on day 17, his fevers settle. On day 19, you stop piperacillin tazobactam and he remains afebrile. Yeah, so what an unsatisfying infectious disease podcast, uh, which we purposely made unsatisfying to show a point that in a lot of these patients, you will never grow a bug. You won't get a really satisfying diagnosis and find that infection that you can treat and know that it was worthwhile that you turned up to work every day and you know, scratched your chin very thoughtfully and made good plans. But the most important thing here is that we've done extensive testing, we've ruled out lots of really serious and dangerous infections, and that the patient clinically got better. He thanks you profusely and invites you for an all-expenses-paid meal at his restaurant. You ponder the ethics of this situation. Yeah. I, <laughs> let's not go into that. I, I'd have to consult my lawyer. <laughs> hospital. When I say my lawyer, the hospital lawyer, I definitely <laughs> couldn't afford another one. All right, I think that's a wrap. Thanks, God. That was um, that was really great. So I think we'll we'll just run through the key learning points. So febrile neutropenia. Remember, neutrophils under zero point five or some, a milder neutropenia under one point five, but usually under zero point five. High mortality that improves with early antibiotics. Uh, remember, sepsis in immunocompromised patients can have muted signs and symptoms, and we find a bacteremia in around twenty percent, but in fifty percent, we never find a source. In the history, you need to gauge the degree of immunosuppression and duration. 
and never forget timeline and lines are the most important things you should focus on. Everyone should aim for three blood cultures, including every line uh, they have and then at least one peripheral one. Um, and FBE, uh, urea and electrolytes, liver function tests, CRP, lactate, chest X-ray, urine, if they haven't been done recently, and nasopharyngeal PCR, and stool. And then if these fevers are more prolonged, we can consider secondary tests like CT chest, uh, abdo pelvis, um, ultrasounds, echocardiogram, etc. There's a long list of infection that can cause this. In terms of bacteria, there's gram-positives, gram-negatives, multi-drug-resistant organisms and anaerobes. Then uh, we're thinking about candida and moulds and viral infections. Uh, empiric therapy is usually with um, piperacillin, tazobactam, kefepime or meropenem. And sometimes we add on things like vancomycin, uh, gentamicin or fluconazole, depending on their risk factors and how sick they are. Often, if you don't, often you don't find a source and persistent febrile neutropenia without deterioration is not in itself an indication to escalate therapy. And if the patient clinically de deteriorates, always discuss with the home team and ID reg and consider escalating therapy. And similarly, stopping antibiotics is a decision that should be determined by the team and infectious diseases, but sometimes antimicrobials are stopped after defervescence or when the neutrophil counts recover. And number one learning point, which we've <laughs> already used that phrase like five <laughs> times by now, but phone a friend. The only thing that disappoints us is when some of these immunocompromised patients don't get that specialty input that they need. So never be afraid to call the home team or call ID uh, for these immunocompromised patients. Call a specialty registrar, ID team, your consultant. These patients are sick and complex, get sick easily. No one will be annoyed when you call them. Great. Uh, well, I personally have learned a huge amount from this, so I hope that everyone listening has also learned a lot. Um, if you liked our podcast and if you like them in general, please leave us a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe like us on Facebook. Thanks for your time. See ya.